This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Today's episode, we'll be talking with Lauren Bosok, who is a chartered civil engineer. He's joining us all the way from the UK, and he's with a company by the name of Atkins Engineering and Tunneling. We're going to talk about what it means to be a ground engineering professional. We're going to talk about some of the things that lead towards someone having success in this field. And spoiler alert, we are going to talk about mentoring quite a bit. We're going to talk about what you can get from being a mentor and from being a mentee and how both sides of the coin are actually really awesome. We're also going to talk about prioritizing well-being for companies, employers, and employees. So this is not something you want to miss. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we get started, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor for today's episode, that being Tensar which is a division of CMC. Check out Tensar Plus, the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated, making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs, reports, and product data can be generated for your design. And training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Tensar Plus is your toolbox for success. All right, Loren, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm great. How are you, Jared? I'm doing great. I'm so glad that you could carve out some time for us. We're in different uh, time zones, different ends of the pond, but we're here together. So this should be a lot of fun. We'll start out by, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about your background, especially as it relates to you being a chartered civil engineer. This focuses in on ground engineering. And then also let us know a little bit more about how you pursued this career field. When I was little, apparently I wanted to become a crane. I assume I said that probably because I loved playing with building blocks and was lifting them like a crane, maybe. <laughs> Regardless, funnily enough, I'm now a civil engineer and sometimes deal with cranes, but unfortunately, I guess I'm not one. So hopefully my former self can forgive me. <laughs> my grandmother actually studied civil engineering and was a civil engineer in, in Romania and the Romanian army, actually. And she was one of my inspirations for me pursuing a career in this field. I initially wanted to study architecture, but I felt that civil engineering was more appropriate while still kind of keeping to the overall topic, let's say, 
I loved solving problems and I liked maths and physics in school. Wouldn't say I excelled at them, but I was pretty good. I moved from Romania to Scotland 12 years ago to study civil engineering and pretty much been living here since. I ended up pursuing a career in ground engineering because I had a great lecturer, really, in geotechnical engineering during my bachelor's degree. I'll shout out to Daniel Barreto from Napier University. I started my career in ground engineering in 2014 with a summer internship at CH2M Hill, which is now Jacobs, and I was between my third and fourth year of university. I was then offered a part-time position during my fourth year of university with them and a master's degree in several job positions later at several companies. I am currently a senior geotechnical engineer at Atkins and in Glasgow in Scotland. And in terms of my background, over 60 to 70% of my experience is in the, in the railway sector in the UK, working on projects ranging from the replacement of a small retaining wall up until uh, doing detailed design on the new High Speed 2 down in England between London and Birmingham. The rest of my experience is, is mixed, but it's primarily in the highways and uh, energy sectors. In terms of energy sector, it would be around onshore wind farms and associated infrastructure to that. And I've been involved in both permanent and uh, temporary works design. My background is civil engineer. I got my CN certification last year, which is similar to your PE license in, in the United States, where CN stands for Chartered Engineer. And it's a certification provided by the Engineering Council to engineers who demonstrate competence and commitment in specific engineering areas but also meet the academic requirements, which are typically a bachelor's and a master's that must be accredited by the engineering council. The ground engineering specialization comes through getting on the register of ground engineering professionals via a separate application. So in the UK, I'm a chartered civil engineer and a registered ground engineering professional. And pretty much the reason why the register was developed, I think it was, it became live 2011. It was pretty much developed to assist clients in choosing professionals who have the right level of knowledge, skills, and experience in ground engineering. It's great to hear the influence of a teacher or an instructor, right? You had someone that gave a good semester, trimester, whatever to teach, and that is what led you to go into ground engineering. I think it's awesome. And then further reinforced by the opportunity to have your internship. I think that a lot of folks that are listening, they're either in school or they're working professionally, a lot of the folks that are in school, they're saying, how can I get an internship? And you see that it really does have a big influence on you. I, I didn't realize that you have that additional specialization for ground engineering. And I assume that helps so that you don't have somebody to just focus in on structures or environmental designing brace excavations, right? It's to make sure that if you're in the ground engineering, you know what it is you're talking about. Pretty much. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the closest thing I get big up to that in the U.S., I guess it's international now, is the DGE, the Diplomate of Geotechnical Engineering, and that's through American Society of Civil Engineers Geo Institute. I would assume it's probably yeah very similar to the Register of Ground Engineering Professionals in the UK. The Register has five levels in the UK, and it depends on your combination of your certification with the Engineering Council and your experience. I would say my level is bang on in the middle. After me, you have registered ground engineering specialist and a registered ground engineering advisor. Once you get to those levels, when you apply to be called a specialist or, a, or an advisor, you have to demonstrate the same abilities, but at a different level. And you typically also 
specialize, let's say, in particular areas of ground engineering, be it soil mechanics foundations, engineering, geology, mining, you name it. And as a registered ground engineering professional, what aspects of ground engineering do you find the most challenging and fascinating? And how do you tackle those challenges in your work? Just solving a client's problem, regardless of what that problem is and, and what sector it is, it's as simple as that. That's what I find most fascinating about ground engineering. And usually the way I tackle these challenges is just by using appropriate methods without trying to be fancy for the sakes of being fancy. I think sometimes professionals just like to get into finite element models for no reason. You don't need them all the time. And for me, this means just getting from point A to point B and solving that problem as efficiently as possible, typically based on the combination of what information I have available, what information I require to continue solving the problem, what are the constraints, financial, geometrical, logistical, material availability for whatever the area where the problem is, the complexity, of course, of the project, and finally the risks either caused to or caused by the path that I follow from A to B. Probably a typical path and tackling a challenge, regardless of what the challenge is, because I wouldn't say I, I enjoy specifically doing uh, railway projects or highway projects or excavations or earthworks. I like ground engineering as a whole, really. But a typical path that I follow for getting from point A to B would be typically following kind of the following scenario. I start with understanding the geology. In the end, although I'm a geotechnical engineer with a civil engineering background, geology is really at the core of our profession. And I look at geological maps. I look at whatever historical ground investigations have been done in the area where the problem is that used to be solved. I look at geological memoirs. We're fortunate in, in the UK to have access to a great database of historical GIs that have been made public. Typically end up carrying a literature review, depending on the complexity of the project. So I look at past experience of what others did, either in the type of ground where the problem is, or the type of problem, or the type of sector. What I found is that type of sector actually matters a lot. I don't know how it is in the United States, but in the UK, when you do projects for the national highways, or for Transport Scotland, or for Network Rail, which is the body that deals with railways in the UK, they tend to like solutions that have been previously proven in their specific area. I get it. It's public money. You probably don't want to risk doing something new with public money. After I look at other people's experience through the literature review, I look at my experience and ask myself, do I have the experience of solving this problem? And what can I do to either gain the experience, gain the knowledge, gain the skills, or if I can't do that, admit that. I need to bring someone else in the team to help with this. We can't really know everything. I guess understanding my limitations is a part of being an engineer. Continuous communication is also extremely important, particularly with the client and the contractor to understand pretty much both of their constraints. Sometimes you may be working with a contractor where that may not have experience in managing specific ground engineering activities. And having that discussion with the contractor to figure that out helps me through my problem solving and the way I tackle the challenge and making them aware, look, you may want to bring a specialist contractor here to help us deal with this problem. If not, we may need to look at a different problem, a different way of solving the problem where you can use your own experience as long as it doesn't impact financials, let's call it, or the program. 
before I even look at solutions, I try to discuss it with the client and the contract to make sure that it's a feasible solution, I think, at least from a, from a buildability point of view. Design and analysis, the last thing, really. And throughout all of this process, what I feel is the most important part of tackling, I want to say of just ground engineering problems, just problems in general in engineering is applying engineering judgment. Does it make sense whatever we're doing? When we look at a, the solution of whatever analysis we've done, does it make sense? Or do we just blindly assume that the software says that it makes sense? There's a saying that it's probably, you have the saying as well, where it's a uh, crap in, crap out. It's interesting you talk about like the rails. It, similar over here, it's you want to know that something has worked before in said geology, in said vertical market. So I think that one of the challenges is that when one wants to introduce a new technology or a new solution for a client like that, how do you do it? We found that some of the Federal Highway Association, for instance, they have research projects that are federally funded. And over time, new technologies are tried out through there, they're proved to work, and then consultants can recommend those things. If you're not, as a geotech or as a ground professional, if you're not taking time to talk to the client and the contractor to see what their constraints are, you can come up with a solution that's not even buildable, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, if you're specing a product that doesn't exist anymore or it's tied up in, on a barge somewhere, you can't use that and you have to use something else. I mean, you could be in a lot of trouble. You could be in a lot of trouble. So it's good to, you know, for our listeners to hear that those additional conversations are important before you just get into the analysis. And sometimes I feel like we just jump right into the analysis and we're not considering reality and, and constraints. So really good stuff there. I guess that's the thing that we see when we do our job, really pre-construction, you see the analysis, you see the, the models, the design, and you think that, that, well, that's engineering. That's part of engineering. That's a part of it. Yeah. Now, what's your experience in both the UK and in international markets? How do projects in different regions present unique challenges and opportunities in ground engineering? What, what do you think of that, Lauren? Although I do have some experience working on projects and in Ireland, in New Zealand, and I did work on one offshore project off the coast of uh, Senegal and Mauritania. Wouldn't really consider myself as, as having extensive experience in international markets. You got more than me. Based on my limited experience, the challenges in ground engineering activities, be it investigation, design, or construction, generally based on a combination of probably the same factors for most industries, but a couple of them are more specific to ground engineering. So I would say the first one is communication. Working at international markets, there's always going to be a language barrier. Sometimes you have to deal with local politics, unfortunately, that may be completely different than the politics of the country that I'm used to in the UK. And the local politics can be seen not just when it comes to the client, because the client can be private, but they're still influenced by the local politics, by how things are done in their country. Time differences can sometimes be pretty mental. When I worked on the on a New Zealand project, the time difference was when they worked, you slept. <laughs> That's kind of what happened. And just overall expectations, I would say, when it comes to communication, in some of the countries that I've worked in, clients just have an expectation without communicating it necessarily to the uh, designer and can cause potential conflicts. The most obvious challenge for ground engineering, I would say, is ground conditions and uh, the available information that you start with. Fortunate that both in the UK and Ireland and New Zealand, the countries that I've worked with on projects, and they all have very good records of geological data. 
I don't know how it is to work in countries where you really need to base everything on the ground investigation that you do. When you design a ground investigation, sometimes you don't even know where to start because you don't know what you're going to expect. I've not experienced that, I would say. Local studies, case studies specifically, are also something that you're not going to find potentially in some of the other countries, which comes back to one of the things that I was trying to do with tackling the challenges. I tried to see what case studies can I look at to, to learn from them. When it comes to engineering, just general engineering challenges would be just applying the typical national codes. Some codes work with partial factors of safety, like the Euro codes. Some codes work with global factors of safety. I saw that in, when I worked on the project in New Zealand. Getting accustomed to codes is probably the easiest thing. You just read the code. It's as easy as that, really. Locally available kit for whatever ground investigation we want to do or whatever construction techniques we want to employ. That's something that I had to consider a couple of times. Finally, I would say uh, non-seismic or seismic areas. And in the UK, we, at least ground engineering, we rarely look at the problem from a dynamic point of view, with the exception of high speed two, which needs to be designed to withstand earthquakes. Although the possibility of an earthquake in the UK is limit best. Essentially, you probably feel the ground shaking more if, if you have a tram passing you than an actual earthquake in the UK. But nevertheless, you still have to, you know, we still have to design high speed to your code eight, for example. I want to discuss the ground forum undergraduate mentorship program. So I and not familiar with that, had not heard of that. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the program, talk about your involvement, and then what are the main goals and benefits for those that participate in this program? The Ground Forum in the UK is it's pretty much an umbrella body for the ground engineering sector. And it brings together several societies and trade associations, for example, the British Geotechnical Association, the Engineering Group of the Geological Society, the uh, Federation for Piling Specialists, there are many others. I think there are like at least nine. The main purpose of the Ground Forum is to take lead on the common interests within the UK ground engineering sector with the goal of advancing them nationally and at governmental level. I would say that that's more or less what I know about the Ground Forum. The undergraduate mentorship program was initially created by the Federation of Piling Specialists, and then oh, now it falls under the Ground Forum. And there are two primary aims of the mentorship program. One of them is to increase diversity and inclusion in the ground engineering sector. We feel that by doing this, we create a more inclusive sector that will attract talent from all backgrounds. Also because we know uh, from several uh, polls that have been carried out by the ground engineering magazine, the ground engineering sector is failing to uh, take full advantage of the talent pool available in the UK. We did find that although universities, the population of students, let's say, is more diverse than it used to be when I went to university, that same pool of students does not want, or a large chunk of it doesn't want to pursue a career in ground engineering, which leads to the second goal or aim of mentorship program is to improve the large shortage of skills and labor in the ground engineering sector in the UK. There's a lack of new entrants in the industry from university. There was an article that I read while back that said that from 2010 to 2020, the number of geoscience students specifically coming into the ground engineering sector uh, reduced by over 45% or something like that. Personally, I get it. Ground engineering is a discipline that is probably not as fancy as structural engineering. 
when you go to university, I know I did that because when I went to university, all I could think about when I'm going to become a civil engineer, I'm going to design massive skyscrapers and massive bridges because that's what you see. That's what you think civil engineering is. That's what you see. Yeah. So they talk about. I guess what we're trying to do with the mentorship program is to, to raise, besides doing the, and trying to increase diversity and inclusion, improving short skill, just raising awareness of what ground engineering is actually about. I still call it dirt with numbers. Let's be honest. It's more than that. I try to sell it to even to people that I mentor without ground engineering professionals, unless other engineers manage to make buildings fly or tunnels somehow appear in midair, you'll need ground engineers. In terms of benefits to students, benefits to students to being part of the mentorship program, oh, there's quite a few actually, be better understanding of what ground engineering's place in the industry is pretty much. That's one of the main ones, but it's also creating a network, professional contacts. I found that that helped me at least the most and progressing through my career, not as much as my skills. We live in a world where having a network is extremely important in the workplace. So we try to do that and help students that are part of the mentorship program to take advantage of it. We also give students access to projects or site experience earlier in their career. There are students who, if they perform well through the, the mentorship program, they land internships and eventually they land graduate jobs. So they, it, it's a kickstart to their career. We also do targeted CBD workshops on CV and interview skills. So sometimes they may find that if they have a mentor that is in a different area of ground engineering that maybe the student doesn't enjoy, we still help them find their way in the ground engineering industry and help them with their CV interview skills to get the job that they want eventually, hopefully in ground engineering. Mentorship from experienced ground engineering professionals is another thing. Without the mentors volunteering to be mentors, the program wouldn't exist really. We're all pretty much a bunch of professionals working in the industry, contractors, consultants, ground investigation contractors, as well as main contractors, specialist contractors. We want to share our knowledge and our experience with future generation of ground engineering professionals, really, because in the end, we'll work with them, or at least we hope that we'll work with them if they come in the industry. My experience, I volunteer as a mentor together with others from across the industry. And as a mentor, usually my goal is to make mentees feel confident in their career choice, whether it's consulting, contracting, ground engineering, or if they just decide, look, I wanted to be part of this mentorship program to find out more about ground engineering. And I actually don't like it, which is perfectly fine. And I try to provide individual-based guidance tailored to whoever my mentee is so that they can achieve the goals pretty much and just become a, a professional as a whole once they graduate. The uh, Engineering Management Institute is like super big on mentoring as I am as well. We head to that. If we talk a little bit more about you know mentoring and the role that it provides for the development of uh, aspiring engineers. I would say mentorship is a two-way street because it provides both the mentor and the mentee with important experiences and skills as they evolve to their careers. Ground engineering specifically is an empirical discipline, even though we have a theoretical foundation, but intended on which it's based. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. It's primarily based on the experience of others. One of the most important reasons why mentorship is important, in my view, in ground engineering is for mentees to learn from a mentor's experience. And it's because of this, I believe that those looking for mentors, regardless 
of their stage in their career because it doesn't matter if you have one year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in the industry and regardless of industry really, having a mentor is still important because you always have something to learn. Those looking for mentors, in my opinion, and this is a lesson I learned from one of my managers in the past, they should change mentors throughout their career uh, with an ultimate goal of becoming a mentor themselves. So the sharing of personal experience gives mentees different ways to approach ground engineering problems. Most importantly to me, a mentor serves as a trusted ally. A great mentor has the mentee's best interest in mind and should provide honest and accurate guidance, constructive feedback that the mentee can trust. Mentors have likely been through situation that uh, aspiring engineers will go through. And knowing that as a mentee, you can always go to someone for encouragement or being listened to, or just as a simple as a free resource, judgment-free, that's something precious. That's how I, to be a mentor, at least with uh, the people that I've mentored before, I hope I've had positive impacts on some of my mentees. Those that are listening in, it's good to be mentored and it's good to serve as a mentor as well. We need both sides. I like what you said there, Lorraine, the reality is that you never get to a part where you don't need a mentor anymore, right? Because like for each stage, there's someone that's ahead of you that has experienced things that could be of value to you and that may be willing to pour into you. I've had many mentors. I've served as a mentor. And right now I'm still a mentor and a mentee. So I'm taking your advice there. I agree. I'm the same. I'm always looking for mentors really at every point in my career, be it technical from, from technical aspects or management aspects, business development aspects, depending on what I feel I want to develop and I need to develop. Employee well-being and mental health have gained increasing attention in the workplace. Unfortunately, this is something we should have been focusing in on a long time ago, but now a lot of folks are focusing in on this. So what are some strategies and some initiatives that your company has implemented to prioritize the well-being of its employees? Before I answer your question, I want to quickly touch on first on the findings of a recent Headspace report that I actually read recently, Headspace, the meditation app, if you know about it, on employee well-being. The survey was done on employees from the US, UK, Europe, and Australia. There's two aspects that I find worth mentioning, which I'm hopefully going to try and touch on when it comes to what Atkins does from that perspective. One of them is productivity pressure and rising expectations for all employees are driving a sense of dread in the workplace and leaders feel the need to keep positive attitude, which is creating stress and a disconnect with employees. Whilst these are not necessarily directly related to Atkins, Atkins does try to prioritize the well-being of its employees and the sentiments are likely felt by its employees as well. I don't think there's any company, ground engineering, engineering or regardless of sector that where employees don't have this sentiment. You see it all over the place, at least in the news and on articles online. Coming back to your question at Atkins, we have a wellness framework, which are, has four pillars. It has a physical pillar, which self-explanatory, I hope, an emotional pillar, which covers mental health, either impacted by internal battles, such as illness or addiction or external factors, such as abuse by others. The third pillar is financial which covers aspects such as personal financial planning, for example. And the final pillar is social with a focus on work-life balance and improving the social aspects of both work and life. At Atkins, this framework has an associated internal hub that offers for each of these pillars several things ranging from 
guides and tools to help employees overall familiarize themselves with well-being aspects, either aspects that impact them or aspects that impact others. There's learning tools to help employees improve relevant wellness aspects, either alone or with the help of others, either internal and Atkins or when at, where Atkins doesn't have the resources referred externally. And also as part of the framework, there's the benefits that Atkins offers. What does Atkins offer to its employees is either part of the benefits package or as just being part of Atkins. In addition to the framework, Atkins also has an equality, diversity, and inclusion strategy they call difference, you know, different makes a difference. Atkins's commitment is to create and maintain an, an inclusive culture where everyone belongs and can reach their full potential. And this includes building awareness as well as empowering us as employees to continue to hold ourselves and others accountable for maintaining this culture, really. In terms of benefits, which are probably a bit more tangible when it comes to how what Atkins does for its employees from a well-being point of view, there's a long list, I would say, at least in the UK, and they all have a positive impact on employee well-being. And this is in addition to you know your typical paid annual leave, private medical insurance, pension contributions. I guess some examples would be the employee assistance program. We have access, free access to well-being apps. We get offered uh, paid days to to become volunteers and help our communities. There's activities with your team that they are paid by Atkins, mental health first aiders, one-to-one support services. So I would say Atkins tries to do as much as they can to keep their employees well. That's really the word. They keep their employees well. Ultimately, Atkins understands the importance of its employees and their well-being. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's a negative impact on a project where an employee or if an employee is going through a tough period. The most important thing is that at Atkins, you're not judged when you go through a tough period and you will get the support you need, either directly or indirectly, so you can feel better. I think this approach gives employees a sense of belonging, showing that they're not alone in this from a business point of view, ultimately results in better employee engagement and a higher productivity. But regardless of working at Atkins or other companies, in my opinion at least, I would say it's in the interest of the employer to have happy and healthy employees, because without them, businesses can't produce what they need to produce. For me personally, what has had the most positive impact to my place at Atkins is the support I have from my peers and leaders. I found that people listen and help to the best of their abilities. And if their abilities are not fit for purpose, because sometimes some problems are too complex for, for others, they will still help by guiding, or at least that's what they did with me. They guided me towards the right direction and finding the help that I need. And I can say the same thing about some of the previous employers that I worked with, for example, Arcadis, they've been, when I've been through hardship, they've been great. We're working at a company, it's a business, right? But the business depends on the people. And if people don't feel appreciated, if they don't feel like somebody cares about their well-being, then they could just leave. And then you can't do business. So you're right. It does make a lot of sense. And it's the right thing to do. And I appreciate the pillars that you all have. Appreciate you sharing that. I'm sure that's going to be valuable for others that are looking for to improve the well-being. Now, in your experience, you can talk about this a little bit, but how does maintaining a healthy work-life balance impact professional performance and overall job satisfaction? Job satisfaction and performance are connected, but the relationship between them is not linear. 
I think there's research to prove that as well. Being honest, at least in my opinion, being overly attached to your job, regardless of how passionate you are about it, can impact both your performance and job satisfaction. Today's uh, hustle culture will tell you otherwise. There is research, and I can provide references in the show notes, showing that whilst job satisfaction does increase the more you work, or at least when people willingly overwork themselves, eventually job performance decreases because it it essentially erodes their mental health and well-being. You can probably assume this for people that are being overworked unwillingly due to poor management, for example. They will probably see this non-linearity start way earlier. The study that I was reading said that once you start working about 55 hours a week, even though your job satisfaction might improve, your performance decreases. I used to be the type of uh, of engineer took on too much responsibility just so I can show that I can or because I just wanted to impress others. There are probably other engineers definitely early in their career who have done this or are probably doing this. To be honest, I probably never impressed anyone. They probably just saw it as, oh, Lauren can do, can do work, give him more work. The way, what I learned to do really to improve my work-life balance is disconnect from my job once my work hours are finished. I'll admit that it wasn't an easy process. I had my emails on my phone and I always had the anxiety of, if I get an email, I need to respond even if it's 10 o'clock. Who sends emails at 10 o'clock? But I found that by fully distancing myself from my job in my free time, I'm now experienced either no or less dread for, for going to work the next day. And I learned through this how to become more efficient actually at doing my job in the hours that I have available. I would say that this approach, if others would want to follow a similar approach or that have followed a similar approach, can probably agree that it can upset some people, especially those who are used to essentially taking advantage of, of us overworkers. And this is where I think cultural differences, going back to your question about working in the UK and international markets, this is where I think cultural differences play an important role, unfortunately. There may be someone listening to the podcast working in a country where being overworked is the norm, and they may not be able to take the same approach that I did because they could probably be punished. That's just reality. As someone who suffers from anxiety and depression, I had to find ways to prioritize my well-being from a work-life balance, and this is just the strategy that I found works for me. I would encourage everyone to find their own way to improve the life part of their work-life balance. Because at the end of the day, as harsh as it sounds, as employees, we are replaceable. What happens when the work bit is impacted, but you've not invested in your life bit? No offense to hustlers that have employees. And I appreciate your transparency and your vulnerability there. You have to get to the point where you kind of stick up for yourself. You have to be able to be well, right? And, you know, people talk about bringing the full self to work, but it's like, it's a part of safety. Like there's so many different aspects to this where if you don't take care of yourself, what are you actually even bringing to the office or to the field? Exactly. Like, is this the person that I want to be making decisions if they're not able to fully take care of themselves? So, you know, as those that are employers have to be mindful and then employees have to be mindful. And the reality is that in some cases, if you feel that your employer is not being mindful of the things that it is you need, then perhaps you need to go to another organization. And that happens as well. We're seeing that people are taking that aspect of their career in their hands. And so really, companies have to pay attention to this. It's really that important. 
especially in engineering, being overworked can be dangerous as a designer to others because you're not managing risks, whereas design risks appropriately. And as a contractor, you can kill someone on site. It's as easy as that. I tried to tell this to some people about the, the risks of working in engineering is that compared to doctors, a doctor can kill a couple of people throughout their career if things go wrong. An engineer can kill thousands. What advice would you give to young professionals that are aspiring to excel in the field of ground engineering? And what are some of the essential skills or qualities that they should focus on developing? So these are people that might be still in school. They could be one or two years out of university. They're starting a company. What are some things they should be thinking about? Don't stay quiet. Ask questions. As a young professional, you're at a point in your career where you should be asking questions. University or college can only teach you so much. And without practicing what you learned day in and day out, you just won't remember it. It's of course important to know the basics, but it's also important to show those who you ask questions that you at least try to find the answer to your question through your own efforts. But once you get stuck and you will get stuck, even if you have 20 years of experience, you will get stuck. <laughs> Accept that you just have limitations and ask your peers. That's why you have peers pretty much. That's why you have mentors as well. Don't rely on what university, only on what university or college taught you. Say, so be inquisitive and read what others have done to solve similar ground engineering problems to the ones you're trying to solve. Also be mindful that your direct peers are unlikely to have all the knowledge, skills, and experience needed to solve every ground engineering problem out there. And if they tell you they do, smile politely and they tell them, cool story, bro. I can't stress the importance of a good literature review, especially based on relevant case studies, going back to at least how I apply my strategy to, to tackle engineering problems. But it, it all boils down to, if you're stuck, don't stay quiet. Ask someone questions to, you need to learn. So before we take our break, where can listeners find out more information about you, your work, and the topics we discussed today? I don't know if, you, if there are any books or websites that come to mind, or you can send it to us. We'll put them in the show notes. People can find me on LinkedIn, as they can probably find everybody nowadays. If you just search my name, Ground Engineering Magazine in the UK uh, has a great website with some of the resources that I touched on in terms of the polls about the shortage of skills in the UK and ground engineering. The Ground Forum also has a website. I would also encourage people to, because uh, in the UK, we also have a similar ground engineering podcast as well. It's called Breaking Ground. If you're interested in Atkins, Atkins' website as well. I'm sure we're always looking for great engineers to hire. And I would imagine that the shortage of skills in ground engineering is probably also high in, in the US. Thank you so much. We're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with Lorraine in our Career Factor Safety End segment. But before we do that, is a quick word from our sponsor for today's episode, that being Collier's Engineering and Design. Thank you to EMI sponsor Collier's Engineering and Design, a full-service A&E firm with more than 2,200 employees in over 60 offices nationwide. As an industry leader, Collier's Engineering and Design has a responsibility to ensure the built environment is constructed with a commitment to the inclusivity, health, and welfare of our people, clients, and communities. Their expansion has fostered an enterprising culture that provides continued opportunities for employees to grow their careers while accelerating their personal and professional development within the company. 
For more information about how you can join their team, find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or visit colliersengineering.com. All right, welcome back. It's our Career Factor Safety End segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we speak with Lorraine Bosok from Atkins Ground Engineering and Tunneling. Now, Lorraine, you've already had a very successful career. And when you look back on your career, is there something that you've implemented to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? I'll say being, or at least trying to be an active member of the ground engineering industry outside of my job. My involvement over the past years with local and countrywide ground engineering groups, such as the uh, Scottish Ground Engineering Group and of the Institution of Civil Engineers, or the Ground Forum through their undergraduate mentorship program, they've both given me the opportunity to network and in turn create industry relations. At work, I strive to practice what I preach and create and improve relations with colleagues, peers, and clients. And I'm hoping that by being the best version of myself, that will improve my factor of safety in my career and ground engineering. And I think that based on the positive feedback that I've been receiving over the past year, this strategy is working. Although I wouldn't call it really a strategy, it's just being myself, really. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. A lot of fun. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was fun. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 83, as well as links to near the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. We wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at Engineering Management Institute dot org.